You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined on Blogging Heads TV. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade, and my guest today, uh, coming back once again, is uh, Professor Jacques Berlinerblau. Uh, Jacques, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Jacques Berlinerblau of Georgetown University. Hi, everybody. Uh, thanks for coming back on. And you are also the author of a book that will be the main topic of our conversation, the Philip Roth, We Don't Know, Sex, Race, and Autobiography, which just published a couple weeks ago. Um, five days ago, five days ago, six days ago. So congratulations on the book. Um, and so our previous conversation, we talked about some of the themes that uh, you explore in this book and we'll link to that previous conversation. So we mostly, we were mostly talking about a excerpt of the book that ran in Salon, I think, and was focused on the racial, a racial or analysis of how Roth, Philip Roth <laughs> treated um, African-American characters in his books. So maybe we'll, we won't cover that part as much because we sort of covered some of that already, but um and as we briefly discussed before recording, uh, when we taped, it was two or three weeks before the Blake Bailey biography published, a, a biography of Roth published, and very quickly after that, uh, all these accusations came out that Bailey himself was a uh, had sexually assaulted uh, various w- uh, women in his uh, in his life, and the book was pulled by the publisher and it was a huge bizarre mess. Um, and so we, we, I remember when we, I re-listened to our conversation and neither of us had read, <laughs> read the Bailey uh, biography at that point. And we were sort of talking about a little bit about the reviews and saying, Oh, this is going to be a big thing. And of course we didn't know that it was going to become this giant, you know, cultural disaster or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, but maybe we'll talk about that a little bit towards Towards the end, because um, yeah, people. I don't know. People. I guess you know, people were going to be talking about Philip Roth this year anyway. But it uh, assumed a level that most people couldn't have predicted. Um, okay, so you. So the book. Um, you, you start right off with um, with Me Too and how the the Me Too movement changed or possibly changed how people might view a writer like Philip Roth. Can you? Um, Talk about that. And is, is that really what inspired this work? Yeah, a couple of things inspired it. Uh, let's get, let's start with me too, because it's so important. Um, and once again, thank you for having me back. I really enjoyed these conversations. Uh, you're a fun person to just speak with. Um, <laughs> thank you. So with me too, what I was noticing in the course of the research is, so me too launches as it were in October, 2017, it becomes this viralizing phenomenon. And within six months, as Me Too branches out into the arts, and many of the most uh, ostentatious offenders were males in the arts, straight males in the arts, and then later they were gay males in the arts, and then later there were some women, very few though. I noticed that Roth's name Arya, kept popping up. Like That's interesting. So I was, I was in media res. I was kind of in the middle of my project when I noticed that. So there were all these like uh, retrospective pieces, Philip Roth and Me Too, right? The hashtag Me Too moment speaks to Philip Roth. And it was all good, but I was trying to I was trying to say to myself, well, wait, is there an accusation? Has he been accused of anything uh, that we would uh, associate with the hashtag Me Too movement? And I couldn't think of one that actually got there, though he came pretty close with the Claire Bloom memoir, Leaving a Doll's House. So the question I wanted to ask is, 
to quote Max Weber, what is this elective affinity between conversations about Me Too and Philip Roth? Why do they keep going together when this author has not technically been um, accused of any uh, typical Me Too crimes? And what I started to realize as I was reading Me Too theorists, I don't know if we can call them that, but the writers that were thinking about art in the aftermath of October 2017, is there's actually a lot of similarity between the way hashtag Me Too theorists think about art and Philip Roth thinks about art. And that was a big surprise. Doesn't mean they agree, but in terms of abstract categories, ways of conceptualizing what happens in a work of art, the same moves are being made. And that helped me understand why these two were always being uh, linked in popular discourse. So I'll stop there and I'll let you redirect me. Um, yeah, that's, that's interesting. And, and so a, a key part of that would be the connection between the artist and the art, which is a debate, you know, that goes back a long time and will never be, you know, we'll never have a final settlement of it, I think. But uh, that was a huge, th- that's a huge theme in Roth's work. And also, um, became part of the Me Too narrative, I guess, in, in sort of a, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the most obvious way would be um, a, you know, performer or actor or writer or something who, you know, had some piece of work that was like about to come out and it was withdrawn. And so mm-hmm. that, that happened to Louis C.K. He had, the, you know, this movie uh, that was like, you know, weeks from being released and then it, it was effectively canceled. And so, and then you get into... Uh, you know, uh, someone who uh, maybe committed a violation 10 years ago, and then they have, um, should we, you know, reading their old work, or, or maybe they committed a violation 50 years ago, and they're no longer alive, you know, what does it mean to uh, consume their work now? And, and so part of that, I mean, part of it gets mixed up with just like, should you, should like, people who we know are bad people get paid money for their creations when they are bad and um that's sort of maybe the simplest form of it of someone saying well i'm never going to see a woody allen movie yeah. again uh even though woody allen has not been convicted of anything um in a court of law in the court of public opinion he's probably guilty and people i think that's totally fine to say yeah i'm sick of woody allen <laughs> for whatever reason well, hasn't been convicted in a court of law but there is a tremendous body of evidence uh far more than roth i'm not trying to defend roth right, right. but as you know, reading my book, I'm very critical of my hero, as I should be, a <laughs> scholar, right? Right. But there's nothing like that in Roth's background. But there yeah, is so nothing. Yeah, and you would think, well, I don't know. I mean, you, and, and this we're moving towards talking, having to mention the Blake biography. You know, if if there was if there was a group of people who had, I mean, oh, this is so complicated. Often with these cases, it was a, you know, this it wasn't a one time offense. And there's multiple accusers, and that's the case with, you know, Cosby and uh, Weinstein and CK, etc. Not always, not always the case. But so you would think, if Roth had committed a uh, transgression that you know we now see as a true violation or a crime, it, it probably would have been habitual, and it probably would have come out at this point. And the so the fact that it hasn't, obviously, you know, it, it'll never, it'll never be like. He's dead, so he'll never be proven in a court of law. And mm-hmm. um, he, and, and so that it'll always be, there'll always be some level of ambiguity, but it does seem like, despite the fact that he wrote about many men who were 
you know, the type of people who would be taken down by Me Too. Uh, in his personal life, he was not that, but he conflated his fictional characters with his actual um, real-life identity uh, uh, so much. And uh, there's even a part of the book where you question whether we could even be said to have a real-life identity or whether the self even exists. We'll maybe discuss that a little bit also. So I'm, I'm kind of rambling here, but um, yeah, so it's... It, 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 see, I don't know. I'm, I'm at this point. I, I'm not ready to give Phil Broth the, you know, the per, the pass of saying, well, he obviously never did anything truly bad in his life, or we would have learned about it by now. Because who knows what'll come out tomorrow? Maybe Blake Bailey burns some you know, documents because he seems to be a sociopath. There's there's all this, but um, but yeah, but the talking about how how Roth understood his fiction and his fiction and how feminist critics uh, understand uh, after me to understand the connection between the artist and the art. Uh, that is very interesting. And so can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. All right. So, all right. So let's talk about that. Right. Um, what I think uh, hashtag me too at its finest, and I call it the me too school, but it's not really a school. It's just various writers that kind of coalesce right around the theme at its best. What the school says is, we really cannot disarticulate or pry apart the artist from the art, right? They don't say, and cancel the sons of bitches. They ne- I've never read that in the writers that I'm citing in my book. I'm sure it's said by some who affiliate with the movement, right? But they're not about cancellation. And I think that's where things get murky and people get all defense. Oh, they just want to cancel Philip Roth. They just want to... No, they're saying once we acknowledge that there is no wall separating the artist from the art. This is a demand for much greater reflection about the artwork itself, about the victims, right? About the perpetrator who might have been a victim. And I mentioned Michael Jackson as an example of a perpetrator who was likely a victim in his youth. And I think what they're asking us for is a much more deep and profound engagement with what the work of art is. And if Philip Milton Roth is listening to us right now, are you of blessed memory? He's like, right on, Jacques. I've been trying to do that. I was trying to do that for 60 years, right? So much of his art was trying to get us to understand the saga or the drama or the, or the road that the artist takes to get the work of art produced. And his artists are always saying dumb things like, well, the art is over here, right? And life is over here. They're totally separate. What could be clearer than that, says Nathan Zuckerman in the anatomy lesson. But if you know your anatomy lesson, by the end, you realize everything is completely jumbled to the point where you don't even know if the anatomy lesson is a work of art, right? You can't tell what it is, right? I love that about Philip Roth. He creates these self-denying artifacts, right? He creates these things that look like novels, but you don't really know what they are. So both Me Too and Philip Roth agree about this fundamental premise that the art and the artist cannot be disarticulated or separated from one another. Their ethical investments, as I point out, are very different, right? Roth has a different understanding of what that means. But it was that similarity which I thought was kind of cool. And I wanted to follow that. I want to say, well, Me Too is licensing me to ask this question and proceed as if the answer is yes. Yes, Philip Milton Roth grafted his life, and this is where it gets tricky, are you you ready? And the life of women with whom he was romantically involved into his fiction. 
Once we acknowledge that's possible, I think we start having a very different conversation uh, about Philip Roth's art, his aesthetics, what he was after, who he was, his failures and his successes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as you note in the book, Roth in his, if he was uh, being interviewed or something, he often uh would bristle at being termed even like a Jewish American writer. He'd just say like, I'm an American writer, even though virtually all of his main characters are Jewish men in the creative field who were born in Newark in the early 1930s, matching his biography. And so it's unclear, I think if, I mean, he obviously liked sort of messing with people and it's unclear whether he did that as just another way of trolling essentially in, in modern parlance, or he did somehow believe something that seemed obviously false that like the, his characters were not avatars in some sense of, of himself. So that I don't, I, I never, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if we'll find an answer. Yeah, but he told a lot. I mean, so on the Jewish, I wrote a piece for this forthcoming Cambridge uh, volume edited by uh, Madeline McKinney about was Roth a Jewish American writer. And I, I line up all the times he said, no, you moron. I'm not a Jewish American like really truculent in the face of people like, you know, sandblasting them with anger, right? Like how could they be so dumb, right? So I just did a graph of how many of his novels, maybe we'll put it up at the end. Like I just did like a little bar graph. How many of his novels had uh, like an X-rated level of Jewish content, a Holocaust references to state of Israel, anti-Semitism. It's like, it's like three quarters of them, right? From the beginning to the end. So why did Roth deny these things? I'm going to make a quick cut, which might interest you. Roth, in a way, aimed to obliterate the critic. All right? And I think what's happening in my book as I read it again is there's this war going on between the critic and the artist. All right? And critics and artists are very different people. And we are subservient to them. And we are secondary to them. And we're not as great or as brilliant or as cool as them. But we're fucking critics, right? It's our job to understand the art form and what's happening. And as I look at Roth's career, he had very little patience for skilled critics that might disagree. There were a lot of skilled critics that loved him, justifiably. He's a great writer, right? So when Hermione Lee uh, writes about Philip Roth, he gets into a great conversation with her because she's a wonderful critic. And she happened to like most of what he... When skilled critics that were critical of his work... Uh, got on his case, and I would refer to certain reviewers for the New York Times, right? Roth just descended into these infantile rants and, and ways of caricaturing them in his own fiction. There it goes again, right? right. And, art- and I I think you don't explicitly note this, but um, I had totally forgotten that like a, a villain character in Sabbath Theater is, na- is last name Takatani. Yep. I mean, yes. how, I mean, you know, I assume Kakatani yeah. reviewed Sabbath Theater. I don't know if she said anything about that in particular, but like, yeah, he's, he, he likes thumbing his nose at various groups and one would definitely be his critics. And I think he always was saying, um, any, yeah, just, uh, just a fuck you or like, you don't, you don't understand me. Um, but could he have done that without the whole Japanese American anti-Asian stuff? I mean, right. So the Kakutani, he keeps mispronouncing the name and miswriting it in Sabbath theater. Ha ha ha. Camper. There's a lot of like, anti-Japanese rage in there. All right, I get it. His brother was killed in World War II and was shot down, right? This is Mickey Sabbath's brother. This is Sabbath's theater. (laughs) But 
I mean, there are ways of doing this and there are ways of doing this, right? Did he have to, you know, uh, excoriate Irving Howe to the degree that he did by making him into the pornographer Milton Apple in the anatomy lesson, right? So, I mean, we're sitting here. It's funny. We've already, we haven't even asked the question. We have like a dozen examples of Roth importing people and events from his life into his fiction, right? And this son of a gun was constantly denying it and getting mad at people and saying they didn't understand what art was. They didn't understand what fiction was. How dare they uh, assume that anything he wrote was not the sovereign product of his fecund imagination. (laughs) Right. And it's absurd. So what critics have to do is we have to be critical. And if you look at some of the things I say in the book, the critical apparatus failed with Philip Roth, right? It gave in to Philip Roth, right? Philip Roth mastered the critical apparatus. And I think there's a little of that with the official biographer as well, right? The official biographer was handpicked, right? The official biographer was the recipient, I feel, maybe of perks and benefits of the doubt that others might not have received. And what we got was a huge, huge scandal, which is not good for Roth studies, by the way, all right? Those who wanted to bury Roth now have another reason to bury Roth, and that's a minor tragedy from all of this. There are a lot of major tragedies from this whole episode, but that's a minor tragedy. It's not good for Philip Roth's posterity. Right. Um, okay, so let's let's talk about uh, what you mentioned about Roth bringing people from his life into his fiction, even if he denied denied it. I think you know. So he he's gone. He you know he can, he can no longer object. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this in this world, so um, but he but it seemed pr- pretty obvious that uh, he used people in his life uh, and and versions of them appeared in his fiction, and uh, often they were not so nice versions of them, and or caricatures or total like grotesques uh, versions of people people in his life, especially women who he had r- romantic relationship with that ended badly, and the main one is. His first wife, um, what is her name? Martinson, Maggie Martinson, Margaret Martinson Williams. Okay, Margaret Martinson Williams, who he had a very bizarre relationship with, and um, who uh, they married, they divorced, and she died in a car accident in the late nineteen sixties, and but continued to haunt uh, mm. Roth and his novels for a long time thereafter. And there's at least like six or so characters you could say are some version of, of this woman. And um, in my conversation that I had with um, uh, Laura Marsh from the New Republic after the uh, the Bailey story broke, she noted how uh, it, it seemed like in the biography uh, like uh, Bailey and Roth were working in lockstep to, to portray her uh, as a human monster and you know, disgusting in all in every in every possible way, um, and and so now we have to wonder, why, like how you know the, the, this of like first official draft of of history that was written, uh, how accurate that is. But uh, but anyway, um, and so I, I if I'm am I reading you correctly to think that you see it as some form of a violation that the Me Too movement has exposed to us that Roth took people from his life and without their permission and maybe, you know, maybe they, they were after they were dead, but they may have been living, um, uh, ca- turned some, had a fictional version of them appear in his books and, uh, and often portrayed very badly. Is, is this like an ethical? Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. So as always with Roth, cause he's so smart and he's always ahead of the game, right? Roth in his fiction has characters complaining 
about being fictionalized by Nathan Zuckerman, right? So they're reading about themselves. Think of Henry Zuckerman in The Counterlife, right? And he's saying, that bastard, that cannibal, did he completely lack a conscience? Did he know what he could have done to my life if anyone read it? Maria Zuckerman makes the same complaint. So we're in this like metal loop where we have no idea where, where we're standing with Roth. And I don't think he quite, that's the question I'm really interested in. Did he like sometimes not know where he was, right? What dimension he inhabited? That'd be so cool, right? <laughs> if we learn that uh, about Philip Roth. Uh, ethically, it's a bad practice. Uh, I think a friend of mine put me in one of his novels, a former friend, right? And I'm not recognizable and I'm not a famous person, so it doesn't matter, but I felt really violated. I did not like it one bit and it's nothing. It's just some certain characters and oddities of the Berliner Blau persona. (laughs) Imagine you're the ghost of Margaret Martinson Williams. What did I count? 10, 10 times. He brought her back into a novel for another drubbing. All right. So at some point, the fact that she can't even respond, that's part of it. Right. Those who do respond, Claire Bloom, all right, who found herself likely parodied in I Married a Communist, right, really felt a sense of um, betrayal, which is one of the great Rothian themes, and outrage at having been traduced by Philip Milton Roth. In the Library of Congress, I realized this went back very early, right? So 1959, I found a letter from, I forget, is it Gorofsky or Grofsky, who is the model for Brenda Potemkin. And the Grofsky lawyers are saying to Roth, do not publish this. You have traduced her. We will take very badly uh, to you publishing this story. Uh, but he did it anyhow. Uh, somebody like Irene Nadell, a, a wonderful Roth scholar, would be able to tell us how it all came together. But Roth had a habit of taking the intimate, romantic, sexual, interpersonal details of his relationships and putting them into his fiction and it's not as if these women are made out to be these like sterling uh, until maybe like the counter life with Maria Zuckerman. It's often very negative, right? right? And it's often very sexist and it's often very misogynist, right? And this is why I think those Me Too bells went off, right? Looking at these depictions, especially in the 70s, in my life as a man, for example, right? You had feminist critics, I think of Vivian Gornick, right? Who were saying, what, what is this? What's going on here? And I think what Vivian Gornick in her criticisms of Roth understood is, no way, this ain't fiction, man. I I think she got that. I don't think she said it, but I think this is way too close, right, to be just fiction. He's doing something creepy here. He's doing something seedy. He's taking women he knew and he's putting them on the page and they can't talk back. They're not winning the battle, right? There's no self-criticism. It's just an excoriation. And sure, uh, is it legal? Yeah, it's legal, I guess, right? You can't defame the dead. Is it ethical? Absolutely not. Um, but, you know, art isn't ethical. The name of my first chapter is Art is Slimy. So uh, I study a, a slimy thing, right? And you enjoy and talk to people who study or create slimy things. So here we are, all slimy, groaning together. <laughs> okay, so let me, so my reaction to this is, well, first, I'm, it's, I, I may mention this in the, pre, in the last time we talked, um, I, I heard when I was in high school and before I even knew who really who Philip Roth was that the actual Brenda Potemkin grew up in my town, South Orange, New Jersey. And that, um, you know, and, and so that was sort of like a local, you know, trivia point that the, the real Brenda Potemkin lived in the a, a sort of Jewish neighborhood uh, called Newstead in South Orange, New Jersey. And there's probably a dozen or so women 
uh, at least over the years, who claimed to be the actual Brenda Potemkin. Um, <laughs> That's and, so funny. And so it's impossible to know who it actually is. I, I think I actually, and then, you know, so who who knows? Um, so it's funny that, you know, at one point uh, there was a threatened lawsuit by someone who claimed they were being defamed and, right. and probably there's a dozen different women who say, who, you know, whisper to their grandkids, you know, I was the actual Brenda Potemkin. Uh, you know, I gave, I, I asked the, the lifeguard to hold my glasses. And the it's Maxine Grofsky. That's okay. who we're almost Max G R O F F S K Y. Please continue. This is very entertaining. Yeah. So I mean, so, I, so, but that's just sort of a silly aspect of it, but also did you, okay. Did you pay any attention to this, um, mini controversy, uh, I read an article that Slate published a couple months ago about uh, the cat person short story. Did this yes. get your eye? Refresh my memory, though. Okay, yes, so, so, so cat person, just for people who don't remember this, cat person, a short story published in New Yorker. It was like the first and maybe only viral short story where like it captured the discourse for like a week. And um, it's fiction, but but people, it, it seems so realist that some people thought it was like actually a personal essay maybe there's people who don't usually read short stories it just it, like people were talking about it and it it, it was narrated by a uh college a woman who's a college student and she has a an uncomfortable um romantic encounter with an older right. man and yep. it's sort of it's sort of sparked a conversation about like gray rape because mm-hmm. the the woman never says no but she's very uncomfortable and it's all from her perspective and you really it's sort of extremely well done the, the writer's name is Rupenian I think and she immediately got like a, a book contract off of this and um, yeah and, and the reverberations are still being felt so then uh, just a couple of months ago Slate published this piece uh, written by a woman saying that the, the plot of Cat Person was taken from my life mm. and I this We'll include the link to this. Uh, it, it sort of baffled me. I, I, I still don't know quite what to think about it. Mm-hmm. But this woman claimed, and persuasively, that key details in the short story, um, she was were taken from her life because she she knew people who knew Rupenian, and um, like they were students. That, like Rupenian was like a grad student while this woman was an undergrad, and somehow the story got around of of a relationship with a guy in his thirties, and there wasn't there wasn't like a uh, sexual assault it just was like a relationship that ended but she saw herself transmogrified mm-hmm. um into a fictional character um and yeah and and certain key details and like people were texting her being like did you did you like have you read this story like i think this is you and she was like what are you talking about and so it, it seems so from her, this woman's perspective is is like a totally bizarre thing that happened it is like something out of a philip Roth or woody allen um story of mixing reality and fiction and yeah. and who knows what and the, so a lot of people were thinking like what was wh- is there an ethical violation that happened here obviously this woman went through a bizarre episode but like did repenting what should he, she have done and i kind of ended up thinking she should have changed a couple more details like this woman's hometown or uh, there were other specific details that were included that could have obviously been changed without sort of exposing this real person to you know whatever but um but in the end it was sort of like what what is the fic- what is a poor fiction writer supposed to do? I mean, you know, you can create people out of whole cloth. You can write stories about aliens and, you know, wizards and goblins and, and stuff like this. Mm. Um, or you can like look at real life and sort of bring it all in. And so, you know, if I were a novelist and I wrote a novel about my parents or, or parents that somehow resembled my parents and, you know, would, would people get, or, or would people be mad at me that, I mean, I don't get to, I didn't pick them. Uh, so it's a little bit different than with a um, writing about a former romantic partner. But 
if, especially, I don't know, if, if you had a relationship with Philip Roth after 1969, you sort of had to know that he might end up writing some yeah. version of you into his novels. And, and so I sort of questioned whether this was something that we can say is, I agree, like art is messy and not, shouldn't, we shouldn't like put it up on a pinnacle all the time or yeah. ever maybe, but like what, what else is what, what else is the writer supposed to do besides? Yeah, what are they supposed to do? No, I, it's it's real life. I, I thought about, I mean, Roth was not he, he was not in any way unaware of the ethical problem. Right, he knew this was an ethical problem. Right, he wrote about it in his fiction, and he kind of gave fictionalists this romantic hall pass. Right, they had a license to cannibalize. They had a license to be shameless. Right. Because that's what the artist has to do, right? The artist has to transgress in order to tell the truth. Now, this to me is much more interesting a line of defense than some of the other lines of defense that, that Roth might, might offer for traducing these women into his work, right? So if he's saying, I am ready to suffer the consequences so that through my art, I can tell you something that's very, very true. I can speak the unspeakable. And let's recall, Arye, that that's a major Roth project, right? And this is why Roth was, and to a certain degree, is a hero still to me, right? He wanted to speak the unspeakable. He wanted to say in fiction what economics can't say, what politics can't say, what the pharmaceutical industry can't say, right? And that is a noble uh, venture, right? It got sort of, I mean, he kind of divigated, right? He went off the path, Big time. But what Roth is always trying to do or frequently trying to do is he's trying to tap into something very true and very raw that can't be said. And he's trying to put it in beautiful prose so that you can say, oh, God, I never thought of that before. That's a really interesting perspective. I, I Nobody ever alerted me uh, to that. So he's trying to show us something. His mechanism for doing it is weird. Right. It's like those paintings. What is it called? Hyperrealism. You know, the paintings that are made to look like a photograph. Right. Mm-hmm. He's often just taking actual events from real life and through his alchemy, and he's a wonderful writer, he's kind of splaying them on the page and he's amping them up a little bit and daubing them here and there. But fundamentally, the events are true. Let's go back to the Me Too thing for a moment. If these events are actually true, and if they've actually happened to somebody like Philip Milton Roth, yeah, then he would be subject to some pretty serious Hashtag Me Too inquiries, don't you think? Right? Sabbath's Theater and My Life as a Man, final chapter of Portnoy's Complaint. Right? I can name about five or six novels where there's a bucket full of incidents, right? Where a hashtag Me Too litigator, if there were such a thing, would say, Well, I need witnesses here, right? Uh, given that this guy writes so autobiographically, uh, I want to know if this actually happened, right? If a, if a crime was actually committed. So Roth has passed. We're never going to figure a lot of this stuff out. Um, but it, it really is a, a searing question. And I feel when many types of feminist readers read Roth, that's the question they're asking. Unlike his older graying audience of mostly men, but not only men, right, who kind of grew up in the post-World War II liberal consensus, they're not asking those questions as they read. And as I point out very clearly in my book, my students are not vibing with Philip Roth. All right, this generation of students has a lot of problems with him. And I find a lot of my work, believe it or not, is defending him and saying, okay, guys, 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 let's look at this beautiful passage here. All right. Let's think that maybe Roth is trying to 
light up misogyny, right? And show how awful a thing it is in indignation, which I think he's doing with the character of Olivia Hutton. So I'm finding my work in the classroom being much more defensive, right? When I do research and I publish, I have no need to defend him, right? But for purposes of getting my students to understand how literature works, right? And what fiction is, I can't have them hating the author from day one, right? If they're just scowling in class and, you know, they're reading him reluctantly and crying as they read him, uh, we're going to get nowhere. So I've got to, you know, got to meet them halfway and I've got to show them what's sublime about this writer. And there's a lot that's sublime about this writer. I want to stress this, are you? Right? Because a lot of people are like, oh, Berlin, wow, he's just a hater. No, there, there's great, great stuff about Philip Roth, right? And I'd like to preserve that stuff, but I don't want to do so as some type of lackey or sycophant, right? I want to acknowledge what the problems are because he taught me to do that, right? He was the one who taught us to keep it real, right? And never put your intellect in the service of a political program or an ideology, Right. That's what critics are supposed to do. And I think Roth kind of forgot that at certain points. But, OK, you know, he can't be perfect. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, probably I mean, I would guess most novelists are not a huge fan of critics. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I Maybe I shouldn't speculate, but it's, it's, it's a naturally antagonistic relationship. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's possible that in 50 years, people will just the uh, Roth will just fall out of favor for whatever reason. I'm thinking of like, you know, that guy, um, that I'm probably mispronouncing his name, his name James Gould Cozens cousins, who was like a very popular writer, won the mm-hmm. Pulitzer prize. And, and then no, no one reads it today. You know, it's just like things, things change. No one reads William Galsworthy anymore. If can, I, like, can I jump in? Cause you said something really interesting, right? Like about critics and artists, right? Um, something has changed. We now live in the digital age. Everyone is a critic, right? Right. So there used to be like I quasi it wasn't like Germany, but you had credentialed critics. Like I, I understand in Germany, you need a like a license to be a butcher, a bus driver, a soccer coach. Right. You need licenses. There were critics in the 90s and the aughts who spent their life doing criticism. There are scholars. Right. We are credentialed. I don't know if we're licensed. And now in the social media age, everyone is a critic. Right. So. It's even more devastating for the critical apparatus, right? It's not good for the writers either. And I want to second something you said that that writers don't like critics, but you know what? Damn it, they need us, right? I really do think they need us. And you're also correct that it gets especially truculent with writers and their critics. Think of that Beck book by Updike where he murders <laughs> he murders his <laughs> critic. He sneaks in yes. like a Batman outfit, right? And the guy's got an emphysema tank and you know, and he's like dying anyhow. And the guy just Right. God, is that funny. Right. So I don't think there's much. There shouldn't be. Right. We are the regulatory mechanism. Right. If there were such a thing. Right. We're the sort of overseers and we don't get the glory and we don't deserve the glory. Right. But what we do is important because we teach uh, to the next generation. And Roth had so little sympathy or empathy or respect for the craft that, you know, uh, I should have called the book. Are you the revenge of the critic or the critic strikes back? <laughs> right. I, I mean, it's, you know, th- like thinking uh, over the long term, the, you know, the artist cr- creates and then the critic critiques and analyzes. Mm-hmm. And then the critics sort of decide who are the artists that continue to be read. But like people generally are not reading the critics from 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, like there's some critics who are such good writers that people continue to read them. But it's sort of like, they, like the there's a sorting some sort of societal sorting mechanism such that you know things rise 
and Moby yeah. Dick, which, you know, was people didn't like it for, during its first 50 years or whatever, you know, it sort of rises, but like people are probably not reading the criticism from, you know, like 1855 or uh, 1910, you know, the either the original negative reviews or the, you know, re- Renaissance age of Melville um, to think about it. Like, you know, there's, there's always new critics coming and there's not as many new Melvilles writing yeah. new uh, masterpieces, I guess is, is part of it. But um, okay, let's, let's move on to the uh, talking a little bit more about misogyny in mm-hmm. Roth. And you have, a, you have a tripartite structure in which you analyze his misogyny. And I, I you, you'll know the, 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 the labels and different levels of this, but um, I mean that the most obvious charge, and we talked about this last time, is not Philip Roth racist or, or Philip Roth, you know, unethical stealer of other people's biographies. It's just like this guy hates women, and the characters hate women, and probably Philip Roth, the author, hates women also. So why should we give him the, the time of day? So what do you, what do you think about that? Um. All right. So what I did, as you alluded to, and thank you for reading carefully, as I said, um, let me start this way. I was speaking to um, a colleague of mine. I'll mention his name because he just told me that he had reviewed my book. And uh, so the, you know, it's important that we didn't speak while he was reviewing it. But he said, I reviewed your book. I liked it. And he, he mentioned something which I think is really interesting. He said, you know, Roth is unbiographable. Right. Um, you know, unphotographable from, um, what's that song? My Funny Valentine. Unphotographable, okay. <laughs> right? He's unbiographable, right? You can't write a biography about this guy because he has so confused the terrain, right? Like you have no idea where you're standing. So I want to start there. So what I argued is you got to break this down into three types of Philip Roth. All right. The first Roth is real Roth. All right. The guy who breathed air and loved baseball and, you know, and, you know, ate, ate knishes, whatever it might be. Right. That's real Roth. I don't think we know very much about that guy. Right. That guy is hidden behind a thousand screens and he didn't want to share. And, you know, that's his right. Right. And a 900 page biography was published about him earlier this year and it caused a lot of controversy. For and it did. The questions in that biography are, are really the questions that Roth asked about himself. Right. I, I, I wanted to see different questions being asked. Right. Did, did you end up reading it? Yeah, I did read it. Of course. Okay. I, I did not, I did not read it. Just I did read reasons, it, right? Um, I, I read that biography and the Nadell biography. I preferred the Nadell biography by, by far, right? I, I was surprised. Even in the Nadell biography, I thought there were lots of questions that interested Roth, right? And as I said, I want to, Roth has such a clamp hold on our minds, right? He's so controlling. I really wanted to ask questions that Roth never asked. Like, you know, did he, did he have labile personality disorder, right? Uh, which would be, uh, you know, justifiable given that for 60 years he's writing about divided selves, right? Selves that transmogrify into other selves, right? Unstable personality. I think that's a, you know, a, a good question. Anyhow, the three Roths. So there's real Roth. There's page Roth. There's Roth on the page, right? Real Roth we, we don't know enough about yet. Roth on the page is probably less misogynistic than people know because you have to read his entire canon of work, right? So I, I mentioned the death of the critic or the demise of the critic in the digital age. You have a lot of people that read one or two novels by Roth, right? And they either love it or hate it, and then they tweet about it, right? And then they <laughs> write for Slate or whatever. You know, then they write about it, right? And for the professional Roth scholar, of which there are many, and many are quite good, it's like, oh, right, we've lost control of our narrative here, right? The people who are defining Philip Roth, right, don't know the body of work that he's produced. 
If you read Roth cover to cover, right, from the Box of Truths in 1952 to Nemesis in 2009, the charge of misogyny has some justification, but far less, I think, uh, than his fiercest critics have made. Because there are a lot of really redeeming female characters in there, and there are a couple of good attempts to see the world from the point of view of one woman, right? Which I think, because those stories are so obscure, uh, the 1962, The Good Girl being one of them, another one called Psychoanalytic Special, and in his mistress's voice, Roth was actually trying. At a certain point, it's like he was trying. I don't think he succeeded, but he made an honest effort that a lot of people don't know about uh, because they're not familiar with the entire body of work. But then there's Nexus Roth. Nexus Roth is the Roth between the Roth who breathed and ate knishes and played baseball and the Roth on the page. And that guy's he's a bad guy, right? I mean, like he keeps taking these women's, right, the Nexus. He keeps creating this Nexus between things women did or said to him or around him. And he just like splays it onto the page. And the women are really upset. Uh, as we know from Claire Bloom, right? Or they start telling him, if you trust deception, I don't even know what that novel or thing is, right? They're like, don't write about me. You're going to destroy my marriage, right? If he's having an adultery. I mean, he just said the phrase, trust deception. Deception is the title of of which is novels. I mean, how can we, you know, it's right right there. You can't trust deception to begin with, so. (laughs) Don't trust it. But my, having studied him for so long, my feeling is a lot of this stuff actually happened. A lot of these so-called fictional moments, right, um, are like real things that people said to him. A lot of them, not all of them, obviously. And it doesn't, it doesn't denigrate the product. It doesn't mean it's less worthy of art. But we need to understand that as critics. When I read Malamed's God, God's Grace, have you ever read that one? No. That's like end of cycle Malamed. It's one of the. It's about you'll like this. It's about monkeys and apes on a spaceship reading Gemara, all right, reading Talmud. It's one of the straight I, – I don't think that came from his real life. All right? <laughs> I just think Malamed was like, I have no fucks left to give. I'm just going to – I've always wanted to write about monkeys in space reading the Talmud, all right, and having a wise Jew teach him. It's a funny Disaster! It's a hot mess, right? But you can't say the same thing about that novel that you can say about so many Roth novels, right? That yeah. it's coming from unless he was speaking to primates. I don't know, right? I right. Doubt. And, and Roth did have a, especially a stretch after Portnoy, where he had books that maybe had some autobiographical origin, mm-hmm. but Our Gang, The Breast, and Great American Novel all have mm-hmm. these extremely comic, bizarre. Um, aspects to it of the breast was obviously of a heritage metamorphosis where a man turns into a giant human breast and right. uh, and goes from there. Um, although that isn't that David Kepesh given that name, then he comes. Yeah. And then breast, thirty yeah. years later, he's in another novel, no longer a breast, and and, um, <laughs> and so he's not quite the same guy either. We think <laughs> right, it's weird, right? He's yeah, and then there's, there's also multiple Nathan Zuckerman's. The, the first time Zuckerman is mentioned, it's in the meta literary way as a like story or novel within the novel it's, it's in my life as a man yeah, right and then a different zuckerman appears in 1979 in the ghostwriter right yes he refurbished his zuckerman right shine yes, and, and then in the counter life you have multiple you know it's like this uh you know the parallel universe sort of thing going on so it's hard it's hard to say what what actually is happening here and most other writers you know it's sort of like I guess it's, 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 it is somewhat kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something. It's like mm-hmm. there is this larger thing sort of unfolding over multiple works, whereas 
most other, I mean, obviously like there are writers who, you know, like the, the rabbit books had, you know, the same characters over time, but look at the oeuvre as a whole. It, it, like, Can it I is, quote you? I like what you said. It's hard to say what's happening here. <laughs> right. I fought Roth for three decades. I can't tell you how many times a student, you know, has thrown up his or her hands. I, I, I don't know where I am. I don't know where I'm standing. And my response is, yeah, groove with it, right? Go with it. <laughs> It's mm-hmm. good, right? You can't get this at the World Bank. You know, <laughs> you can't get this at Deloitte. All right. So enjoy these college years, right? And enjoy being completely destabilized and not knowing ontologically where you are. Cause that's one of the great things about Philip Roth's art, right? He just like trips you out. You have no idea what's happening. You have no idea what you're holding in your hand and good for him, right? I, I really like that aspect of his literary, literary aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask, you know, Okay, so we were discussing the misogyny charge. Well, what about the two other related charges? Um, being a misanthrope and being misandrist. Misandrist is, you know, the hating men. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, you can make a pretty good case that Roth, you know, illuminated the the ways that men can behave badly better than, you know, almost any other writer. Mm-hmm. And I, we went, I sort of talked about this somewhat in our previous conversation. It's like the, you know, uh, uh, Portnoy does a lot of bad stuff <laughs> in, in his in his life. If we, you know, we're treating, if we're looking at you know, like sort of the pluses and minuses of what he's what he's done, including masturbating into his family's dinner, and um, and at the end of the book, you know, uh, trying to sexually assault a, a woman um, who doesn't want to have sex with him, um, which is sort of played for comic effect um, in, in the book. Um, but you know, he is, you know, this is, this is, you wouldn't want this to be your son and you probably wouldn't want it to be your friend or your, your lover or anything. You want to stay away from this type of person that they seem pretty bad. Um, and that, so the, like, there's a lot of very bad people of, you know, male and female <laughs> presented in the, the Roth novels. Uh, we are sort of given in, in, in more, much more insight into the, why the male characters act as they do and maybe we feel more sympathy to them because they are like either first person narrator or close third person or just they're painted more vividly so we take them warts and all or something whereas the the women are more cartoonish but um you know there's uh the the scene i maybe i'd like block this out because it's so bizarre but this the scene isn't for my life as a man where he the woman is lying on the ground and is saying kill me kill me and and he has the poker and that she soils herself like this is like yeah. everyone here is, 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 you know, needs a, uh, needs some ther- therapy or uh, at least, um, and is acting very badly. So, so yeah, it's, I mean, th- like, do people, is this, does this make sense to you? Like, yeah, he, he, he portrayed men being, you know, very, very bad also. And even like, you know, he tries to get into the mind of, um, the, uh, concentration camp guard, mm-hmm. Ivan, the, Ivan the terrible, whatever, and, and try to understand what, what, what that could be like. And, in Operation Shylock. So, so is there a critical opinion on the, he's certainly, I mean, that's great. That's what we love to talk about speaking the unspeakable. We need that, right? We need to understand who these sorts of creatures are. The problem is that often it's not entirely clear that the moral balance of the story, right? Or the moral arrow is pointing towards condemnation of these fellows. Um, That's, I think that's what some readers have great difficulty with it. it doesn't seem like there's like this third person narrative voice, right? Which Roth occasionally uses, which is like, can you believe this guy? I mean, oh my God. Right. You know, um, uh, what did he say about Sabbath theater? It was the most fun he ever had writing and it was the best novel he ever wrote. And right. So he's enjoying 
that stuff. He obviously <laughs> enjoys transgressing, and that that's a huge he transgressing, right? Yeah, he oh. enjoys. I mean, but if you saw Mickey Sabbath walking down the street, you would turn it in the other direction. Like you don't want to encounter Mickey Sabbath. Yeah. Um, and you know, if there's sort of like this, the way that the contemporary, at least online, discussion of art has become is sort of like they want the creator to like come out at the end and be like, well, this person was bad and this person was good. And we all agree. And so like, you know, they want Shakespeare to come out at the end of Hamlet and be like, well, you know, Hamlet was actually a pretty bad guy. And you know, he caused 11 people's deaths. And, and yeah. like, this was like any sort of ambiguity about morality. People seem to really, maybe that's why Marvel superhero movies are so sure. popular now. It's like people, they want good versus evil or something uh, more than, than they once did. And so, yeah, like Portnoy, entertaining, funny, you know, wacky, and we sort of enjoy spending time with him, at least some of us do, but then you step back and say, oh yeah, he did a lot of bad stuff, and, and you know, you wouldn't want him to uh, be your friend. Yeah, I've, I've, I've got no problem with it, right? I don't want to censor anyone. Um, a, a lot of uh, your general public does, right? And there is this censorious imperative uh, to shut people down, to cancel them, right? Um but, I mean, I, I think cancellation way too much is made of that. Nobody was trying to stop Roth from doing it. I mean, you raise a really good point, right? Literature, again, that first chapter, art is slimy. When I go into a work of art, right, which is a really serious thing for me because, like many people, I do it every day, right? When I turn on music, when I'm jogging and listening, I'm in that work of art. When I'm reading at night, I'm locked in. That's a term I like to use, as you are, Right. Like, you know, I'm all in, man, right? I mean, <laughs> come on. I expect as part of a contract that I can be scandalized, nauseated, disgusted, right? I assume that is part of the contract I have with an artist. And I don't know if this generation wants that contract anymore, right? I don't know if they agree that should be part of one's artistic experience. They certainly, in some quarters... They're not crazy about it in college classrooms, right? If professors are assigning texts that students find um, insulting or disparaging to certain groups, you know, and I get it though. Like, I mean, I understand those students who are like, well, why do we keep reading texts that keep doing this, right? There's a, you know, why does this canon keep the arrow again pointing in the direction of racism, right? Why does the canon keep pointing in the direction of misogyny? And that's really where the professor slash critic is needed, to conduct like a fair inquiry or autopsy of these materials, right? That's where you need the professor to say, okay, you're right, but here's what's good, right? Here's what's beautiful. Here's what's elegiac and lyrical about the work. Here's what's problematic and that we can discard. And here are the major questions, right, uh -huh. that we want to ask. Roth himself, quoting Chekhov, said the job of the writer is not to solve the problem. The job of the writer is to delineate the problem, all right? Tell us what the dilemma is. And with men, Roth did a pretty good job with that. Like he showed us these men in their raw modalities, Oedipal rage, impotence, right? Uh, lust, right? Just, just sexual carnal desire gone wild. He referred to uh, preposterone. Remember that? Testosterone, preposterone. He said, <laughs> he's really good at that, right? And this is why people read Roth. It's like you're getting the good stuff, right? You're really learning what these creeper men are like, and probably more men than we care to acknowledge. He managed to tap into that and put it on the page, but he doesn't get a free pass for that, right? He gets pushback. He can get pushback. He can have people criticizing him. That's part of the process. So I think it's all fair, right? I don't think uh, an injustice was served to Philip Roth, winning all his prizes and dominating 
the American literary landscape with Updike as he did for decades, right? I mean, is anyone going to say Philip Roth, man, that guy got a raw deal. He got a raw shake. Nobody's going <laughs> to say that about Philip Roth. But I could name for you dozens of writers in the 80s who we don't know who are great writers, right? Who, while all the attention was beamed on Philip Roth, right, were never even considered by our janky uh, literary infrastructure, right? Because right. critics weren't doing their jobs either, right? They right. weren't looking for these other writers who were Yeah, up. and then you would hope that there'd be some, you know, some, what happened with, you know, the great Gatsby or Moby Dick that over time – things would be rediscovered and the like prejudices of the day would, would fall away. I mean, you know, it's just like, yeah, I, I, you know, I, it's been 20 years since, or since I was a college freshman, I'm, I'm thinking like, how would these things, you know, how young people take this in? I mean, like if there's, and maybe this is just a character. If there's like, you know, if there are students who are like, don't want to object to crime and punishment because, you know, like, the, the main character kills a defenseless little woman. Like th- this is the kind of activity we're condoning in our great universities. Like that's like sort of the making fun of like woke students or something, but like, yeah, it, it, I don't know. It's um, I, I, I hope that that things aren't moving in that direction or like, you know, I'm, as a professor and teaching a lot of really, really scandalous, egregious stuff. I mean, I, I, I'm really attracted to that sort of material. Right. I've rarely encountered students like that. Usually when you see a campus shitstorm, there's a history there, right? And there's, I don't want to blame the professor, but there's often a professor that's got like a track record of doing this and not listening to students, right? Students are really respectful of their professors, I find. And they're going to listen, right? They'll argue with you. But it's rare in my experience that students are hitting that red cancel button immediately, (laughs) right? They want the professor, whoever she or he is, to make the case. Kids, all right, we're reading Huckleberry Finn because, all right, we're reading Othello because, we're reading Portnoy's Complaint because there's something here for you in spite of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And I think a a good professor, a seasoned professor, right, knows how to, you never hear about them, right? We're the ones that don't make the news cycle. (laughs) We haven't had a revolt in our classroom, right? And as Stanley Crouch once said, the student's boots aren't on the president's desk of the university because there's been a protest about us, right? So I feel, again, we do this for writers, right? We're happy to do it for you writers of the world. We're happy to read you, right? And make the best imaginable case uh, for, for your creation. And this is really what professors of literature do day in, day out. And I think they do it well in many cases when they're not off on their own political agendas, right? When they're just trying to help students, undergraduates understand what's going on, that's a yeah. very powerful process. Yeah, and I, you know, I've been saying, discussing this sort of topic of like campus, you know, campus incidents, like, you know, there's 5,000 undergraduate, you know, um, campuses in the country and millions of students and something weird is happening on every single one of them every day. And if you have a smartphone, you can record it and, you know, it goes viral or something. So I, I think that a lot of that stuff is overlooked. Um, let's, okay, maybe, I mean, we've, we're kind of going long already, but let's yeah. talk at least a little bit about like sort of the second half sure. of the book, uh, Roth Unsexed, you, you call it, um, I guess, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was Prometheus Bound, and then there was Zuckerman Unbound, and then there was Zuckerman Bound, the collected edition of the Zuckerman stuff. Uh, so here's, here's Roth on sex. And so you talk about, um, yeah, things that, uh, some some themes, and like, I, I, I can't remember if we've stated this explicitly, you, you read the entire corpus of Roth, including all the uncollected short stories. I've not read those ones um, as part of, part of your studies. And so um, you're you're looking for themes that maybe other 
you know, obviously like Roth's treatment of women is a service theme, but you've identified some that um, maybe fewer people have noticed. And one of them is sort of like, um, like the self and how Roth conceives of the self and, and sort and almost a possibly a rise of some sort of like a Buddhist idea of like, the self doesn't even truly exist or how is the self or maybe it's more of like a sociological the, like construction of the self from various you know conflicting identities and interactions with other people um and yeah that is you you i think you make a compelling case that this is a theme that should be studied more and all and you also talk about how he, has, he often has a lot of characters who have some sudden change in their life like turning into a breast or um uh, mary from uh, American pastoral, you know, her, uh, she's a normal girl. Then suddenly she's a terrorist. What about collective change, like the United States flips and becomes Nazified, right? Right, and so everything's be, changing in this. Flag is America, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, can you talk a little bit more about yeah. these broad areas? So, some scholars have written about this, right? I don't think they drew the threads together, right? I'm certainly not the first. Even Roth said, "I write about vivid transformation." That's one of the few times I agree with Roth being the, his own literary critic. Yeah, he mm-hmm. yelled it. He writes about vivid transformation. So my question was, what is he telling us about the self, right? Because he keeps talking about selves that are undergoing these radical mutations, right? It could be metamorphosis, but it could already be metempsychosis. Oh, wow. That was like the cool, uh, the cool part of the research was going back to Proust and James Joyce because this was a thing, right? And metempsychosis is like the transmigration of souls. And you're saying, wait a second, Roth is a secular Jew. He doesn't believe in all that, you know, mumbo jumbo. I don't know. It keeps happening in his world. So, so, yeah, can you define metempsychosis a little bit more? It's it's sort of like um, maybe the soul is eternal and exists before and after. It comes from one body, right, and goes to – it's like this ancient esoteric doctrine from the time of the church fathers, right? It goes from one body and it just enters another body. And you see this in Jinx Pazeski. In Sabbath theater, for example, these like so it's almost as if now Roth didn't fully understand Madame Psychos. He he botched it a little bit. That's fine, all right. But the idea is that your physical body gets like taken over or invaded by a completely different persona and a completely different self, right? This is one of his many species of transformation narratives, right? So who are some people that this happened to in his fiction? We can work together on this, right? Jinx Pazeski is a very good example. It goes from a born-again Christian, remember that, right? To a kind of Mansonite, according, like a follower of Charles Manson, right? Uh, Mary Levoff, right? It goes from the ballet student, right? To daddy's little girl, to a terrorist, to a Jane, J-A-I-N, right? So you have these, it's, so Roth uses the term metempsychosis. I became very, very interested. And it's part of this larger Rothian preoccupation with people in radical flux. So I had a nifty little line. Everyone says he's interested in fucking, but he's interested in fluxing, right? That's his thing, right? Flux, 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 movement, people changing. Look how quiet Zuckerman gets, right, in the American trilogy. It's like he's like, he's like shut his yapper, right? This guy couldn't stop talking in the anatomy lesson, right? He had to have his jaw broken to stop talking. He talks so much, right? right? And all of a sudden, he's quiet. So Roth is interested in natural and supernatural changes of ourself. So that's one interesting thing. Another interesting chapter I found uh, was about Roth's idea that there's no such thing as a stable, coherent self. They're, these two are intimately linked, these two ideas, right? I recognized having a, a degree in sociology, uh, like my secret doctorate is in theoretical sociology. I was like, oh my God, he's grafting this 
from Irving Goffman, right? And the symbolic interaction is school, right? And, and Bloomer. And there are all these figures that write about the sociological notion that Arye's self has nothing to do with you, right? You are a creation of the world around you. And I started seeing like this textbook version of this in, uh, in Letting Go, and in the counterlife, it was like he took it right off the page, right, from the symbolic interaction. So what does Roth believe? That the self is a social construct. It is not unchanging. It has no fundamental essence. And it is mutable. It can become anything, right? It can change into any. That means you are you, right? If Philip Roth were our life coach, right, you could be a priest, young man, all right? You could be a member of the NYPD. There's so many <laughs> that you could be a pole vaulter, right? There's so many things you could do. Think about the humbling at the end of his career. Have you read it recently? I read it uh, when it was released, and that was the last time I read it. He's writing about people that are changing their their sexual orientation, right? And it's not like he was into trans issues. I assure you he wasn't, right? But he, I, when I read it, I was like, oh, Roth is fascinated by this, right? This fascinates him because a change of gender to Roth, right? That's a massive change. So he has two characters in there that are radically changing uh, their idea of whether they are men or whether they are women. So there's change, 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 change everywhere. He, in, he invokes Rilke. The, you know, the great work of art says, you must change. And I wonder if Roth wants us to read him. I'm just speculating, right? Just spitballing here after 30 years of teaching the guy. I'm just spitballing. But what if Roth's project for the reader was to get you to embrace change, think about change, understand change, and change, Right. Like, go with it, man. Like, crack out the bong, right, or whatever, draw the shrooms, right, <laughs> and just become the opposite of what you are, right? If you want to become a breast, you can become a breast. That's cool, right? He's given you many, many different options. So I think that's really nice about Roth, and it's not all sexed up, and it's not, like, politically hazardous, and students, young students like that because they're, they don't like my generation's fixedness, you know, you work at the same job for 30 years, you have 10. They don't like that, right? They want to they want to change jobs every two years. <laughs> so that appeals to them because they see this writer talking about radical constant change, right? Altering the self. So I think it's really beautiful about Roth and, you know, God bless him. I mean, I, and I want us to also focus on that when we talk about his legacy and his posterity. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so at the end of the breast, it is the, is printed, is it in English or in German? It's, it's. Uh, he had it. It's, it's, no, it's in English. Okay, it's, in English. it's the archaic portal of Apollo, or whatever that Rilke poem that ends. You must change your life, and that's the final. I think that must be the only time he pulls a trick like that of ending <laughs> ending a, a novel with um, you know someone else's poem. But um, yes, yeah, so that's that's the final line. I think I, I, that was my first when I read the breast. I think I I think I was still in college, and I had I probably didn't even know who Rilke was, and so that was the first time I encountered that poem. I was very mystified by that. I mean, it's a very strange novel overall, but. Um, but yeah, so that you must change your life is you know a uh, definitely a theme there. And but I have, here's and I have a prop here, and this is my one question for you that you did not include, which is here is w- one know. collection Ross collection of nonfiction, reading myself and others. Is, is this another? Is he, is he joking? Is there no myself? And why? Is he, well, well, clearly, this is a man who thinks about words very carefully. A and, strong conception of the self, right? Um, I don't know. I wanted a biographer to figure out what's going on psychologically, not in terms of Oedipal issues. Like, did he have this very weakened sense of his self and did it, did it attack him and gnaw at him? And then he broke out at some point and said, screw it. I'm no one thing. Right. Remember when Southless said, man is a no thing, man is nothing. Right. Man is a no thing, nothing. Uh-huh. 
I feel Roth was reading Existentialists um, at Bucknell and University of Chicago, right? And he just liked this idea and he kind of popularized it. He doesn't take a deep dive, right, on symbolic interactionism or existentialist themes, right? But he was reading this. And look, this is a great question for you. It's a great question for me, for, for my kids, for the students I teach, right? Because we are going to change. It's like a fundamental truth, right? We are really going to change. Roth can be your Sherpa, right? Roth can guide you through different types of change experiences. Now, my friend, we have a legacy for filler, I feel, right? Once we get out of the sexual politics, right, uh, the misogyny, where I think the charge is some, somewhat justified, right? If I can hit the next generation, so read him as a change writer, right? Here's the canon. Read him as a guy who writes about radical change. Let's, let's leave aside. Maybe we can uh, imagine a path forward uh, for, for Roth. Not that he needs it. He has received all the acclaim, all the fame, all the honor that he should, and he deserves probably more, right? But it would be nice for those of us invested in Roth studies um, to, you know, to see him kind of extend for a century or two centuries or so. That would be nice. <laughs> okay, let's, um, so there's, you know, there's other stuff you, you cover, but we're, we're going a little long. And so people should check out the book. Um, I'm holding up to the camera once again, but I do want to ask you about, the um the biography mess and the Blake Bailey stuff and 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 I know you are you you're a member of the Philip Roth Society or an editor of the Quarterly or something but you signed at one point signed a letter that was uh, to whatever trust is man or why don't you just summarize this about so holding out to the papers colleague, that maybe we're going to be destroyed and yeah 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 so my colleague thank you Amy Pozorski uh, who's the editor of Philip Roth Studies and I uh, through we did this all through text it happened on this here phone right <laughs> uh, I was nervous about something I heard you can see me mention it on page fifteen or sixteen in the book where I'm like did Roth just say that he's going to have all his papers burned after Blake Bailey tells the correct correct version right. He did say that. He did, right? And then I like locked it away. And then came the scandal. And if you read Mark Oppenheimer's piece, uh, where I'm the only negative voice there. Oh, like, I forgot you know, that you, okay. I didn't, yeah, I didn't it realize like you were really love fest in a way. You know, I don't know what was going on there. And there's yeah, like one. Oppenheimer wrote a profile of Bailey for the New York Times Magazine that came out like within a week of the, yeah. um, talk about bad timing, of the um, the allegations breaking into the press and, yeah, and there's one turd in the punch bowl and his name is berliner blau right <laughs> and i get one sentence i'm like this is not good i don't like this right mm-hmm. i don't think this is a good scholarship doesn't work when one person gets to see an archive and then it's burnt right i can't believe uh, honestly i can't believe he agreed to that right bailey it's just I would not agree to that right this, well, has, this is you know we're starting to question what how ethical this bailey fellow you know, really is that, this happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Same, same thing, right? Where just certain amounts of people were allowed to look at it, and then somebody just pirated them, threw them online, and that ended that, right? Okay, so what do we know? We know there's a – from the Oppenheimer piece, we know there's a tremendous stash of letters – all right, this is important, right? In the Library of Congress – just give me a second here. This is going to be worth it, right? Mm-hmm. True knowledge is coming your way, right? <laughs> In the Library of Congress – 90% of the correspondences are people writing to Philip Roth. It's not Philip Roth. They're writing back to him. 5% of them, do we get to see what Roth wrote to them? Right? I think that's a weird thing about the Library of Congress archive, which I've perused, right? So 
So he wasn't keeping copies necessarily of the letters that he wrote well, to someone, but he was keeping a copy of. Yeah, unless that's what the official biographer was given. The official biographer was also, he also had the benefit of Roth telling his friends, send that thing to him, right? So Oppenheimer makes a reference to an attic in which there are like cabinets, like six cabinets full of Roth materials, right? It's not clear if that's the same stash of materials that Roth wanted to be burned. So what Amy Pozorski and I did is like we put a body block down, right? And luckily the New York Times and Alexandra Alter picked it up. Uh, and we said, no, don't do this. This is a really, really bad idea. Uh, Roth's literary executors, uh, whoever they are, well, we know who they are right now. Uh, is anyone going to listen to us? I don't know. Is it the end of the world if they get burnt? No. I mean, you know, as Baheshavist singer said, a child did not die. So we have to have a sense of perspective about this, but I don't like what it signifies, right? So we have this stash of materials and now it's going to go up in flame uh, because Roth didn't want us to see it. I think what Roth misunderstood, we'd probably like him more if we read that stuff, right? I mean, we couldn't like him less. I mean, he's got so many critics, right? If we hear him in his own voice and we hear people who knew him talking about him, I, I just think it's going to be more positive. So that's a real... Problem. I don't know what the status of that is. I know that his people, his literary estate, are very defensive and they're very litig litigious, litigious, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not hopeful. But uh, if enough people care about it, it'll become an issue. But they might have been burned, for all we know. Or, mm -hmm. or the official biographer might be holding on to this stuff and saying it's mine. Like, how do they get it back from the official? It might be sitting in an attic right now. Mystery, mystery. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So that so this is dramatic, <laughs> dramatic stuff in the at least in, within this world of you know literary estates and so forth. It is, yeah, it, it, a strange, it, a, unusual request to begin with, and then once you factor in that the only you know outsider who had access to all the stuff has been accused of you know multiple rapes um, by by women and seems you know in my layman's opinion to be some sort of sociopath because he uh, is accused of of raping a woman in the house of the New York Times. Um, book critic uh that's a you know to do that is beyond sort of normal levels of criminality that would be sort of you know we're talking to uh, Kepesh and uh and um and uh, mickey sabbath level of sociopathy to try to, to do something that horrible um so so yeah so it, you know it's it just it, like maybe because i mean this, i guess it sort of in a way gets back to the idea of you know people who interact with a writer like what what's the ethics of exposing their lives uh, to the public in some way, maybe you wait 25 years or something before opening it all up. So most of these people are gone, but um, yeah, it seems like it, you know, history, history and literary history and uh, deserves better than Blake Bailey uh, being the final arbiter uh, of this stuff. And um, yeah. And, and yeah, maybe you wait a hundred years. I mean, they just, they just said they sealed um, Prince Philip's will for 90 years. Um, so who knows what's in there, but we're not going to find out. One thing, I mean, did Roth inadvertently self-cancel himself, right? By, by creating this incredible process through which only one person would look at his, it's almost as if he participated in the very opposite. There's an expression in French, quand on joue, on est joué. When we play, we are played. Right. And I feel Roth was playing, was playing, was playing, was playing. And he got exactly as Laura Marsh said. Right. It backfired. Right. Spectacularly. Right. Well, uh, what do you I mean, wait, do, if let's let's say that, you know, the, on the transmigration of souls that Philip Roth, the entity is still out there in some altered dimension or something. Do you think he's laughing at all this? Because it, it almost seems like something he could have 
like who could have come up with this crazy scenario? Mm-hmm. It almost seems like Philip Roth. And also, what do you think? Some people have said that you know the fact that Roth handpicked Bailey, and there was this you know tumultuous thing with like firing and threatening to sue various other previous authorized biographers. The fact that he felt this affinity with ba- with Bailey, who who is accused of being mm-hmm. a rapist, does that is unfairly or not, does that cast some light back on Roth the man? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, the amount of trust he invested in this person, right? And remember, a writer's job, a writer's job is to observe people, right? Um, I think Tom Wolf is the great, like nothing gets past Tom Wolf, right? I, I feel Tom Wolf never gets his due for a variety of reasons, right? So Tom Wolf, if he were to look at me, I'd be scared, right? <laughs> uh, like he'd just break me down. But that's what writers do. That's what Saul Bellow did, right? They look at people and they understand how Roth couldn't have looked, you know, at at this person and and made, you know, just made some fundamental judgments. It, yeah. It's just very very strange to me, right? Well, he was, you know, if they, it's often said about soci- sociopaths that they're very charming and they are able to wiggle their way into various people's lives because. They, you know, they, they just seem to have this quality, which at first people are like, oh, this is a great guy and they're so friendly and, and everything. And then, you know, and then maybe it, it, it all goes bad or something. So maybe this is too facile. But um, yeah, I mean, also he was, you know, in his 70s, at least when this, when he first met Bailey, I guess. So it's possible you know, so. the writing declined over time, I think, and maybe his faculty of seeing through bullshit or, or whatever also sort of declined. And obviously, and yeah, Bailey, as, as someone who would like, flatter him it, it seems like bailey had that skill and he used it but everyone flattered get, him, get right? in with roth but also he used it to like when he was teaching you know middle school students he would flatter these children and and years later he would like try to uh have sex with them so that's hideous um but allegedly i mean uh, allegedly allegedly let's say so but remember roth's circle like there are eight books written by Roth by his about Roth by his friends. I mean, nobody can make that claim. That's a bizarre claim. But there are almost as many books written by Roth by his friends as are by scholars, right? It might be like twenty to eight or nineteen to eight, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the kind of Jerry Sandusky problem, right? I mean, you know, Joe Paterno and you know Pa, whatever his name is, Joe Pa, right? They're all surrounded there at Penn State, right? There's a bubble. Nobody can get in. Right. And when there is no critic or regulatory mechanism, I don't want to sound like too much of a liberal, right? <laughs> Secular state, right? When nobody's looking, these types of things are going to happen, right? And I'm not saying Roth intended for this to happen, but he increasingly surrounded himself with friends and confidants. And I don't think he had enough, shall we say, um, critical pushback uh, from people, right? I mean, I have people like that in my life. I mean, that. My wife, right? I mean, that's the role she plays. Is to my friends that criticize me. You have folks like that. My mother, right? And I do it for them as well, right? That's our job. Our job is to call bullshit on one another, right? And I think when you become famous for obvious reasons, it's hard to find people like that, right? That are, that are willing. To yeah, say- who's willing? To, yeah, who's willing to call call you on your bullshit? Yeah, that's a, a valuable person to have in your life. And you know, he, you know, Roth, um, you know was married twice and but you know one marriage was like this very like 15 year relationship and then two year marriage and then it all ended in disaster so he and he see it did seem like he, he largely led a solitary life uh laid out and although you would also hear that you know he come to new york all the time and entertain and had dinner parties or attend dinner parties or something but yeah i mean it's just yeah if someone reaches that stature they are that age this is the you know the guy who is never got the nobel prize unfairly it, it is difficult to imagine someone in his circle 
call, calling bullshit or telling him he's wrong about everything. And you know, Roth was not the type of person who seemed to like being told that they're wrong. Most people don't. I mean, you could, I mean, you know, sort of a, a, in a more evil register to play that in the Trump administration. Like no one is the people surrounded Trump. No one is willing to really call him out or or withstand his his fury and, and stand up to him. They all shrank away and didn't show a lot of moral courage. And but yeah, I mean, I, I, it does seem like Bailey really was is was skilled at manipul- manipulating people and roth was you know he manipulated uh him as well it, it could be though roth went in search of these by bi- this was his project for the last 25 years of his life right so he at some point roth was thinking very hard about bailey and his appropriateness for the job um it's curious all right it's really curious a colossal act of misjudgment by a person who was really good in real life, right? Roth was a player, right? He knew how to manage his affairs and fight for his interests, right? He was good. That was a that was a misjudgment and a big one. And um, what can we say? Yeah, and I do. It, it will be interesting to see if if this does affect the legacy, it, it, like popularly, of, if people are like, "Oh, isn't that the guy who you know his biographer turned out to be and accused you know multiple rapists?" Um, that that's a black mark and that's not a feather in the cap um, to use the, uh, you know, catch 22 um, dichotomy. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's still a huge mess. I do. I feel, I mean, you know, it, it's obviously calmed down, but I, I do wonder what will happen. Yeah. And especially the, you know, the documents and it just, it seems insane to me that the literary executors would be you know, stoking the fire <laughs> right now. I think they would be smart to just say, okay, we'll wait 20 years and then, uh, you know, reass- reassess all this stuff, but um, yeah, it's 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 totally bizarre. And do you? Th- I mean, do you think is 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 the ghost of Philip Roth, um, the ghost writer? Is is he chuckling at, at this ridiculousness, or is, or what do you, what do you think? I don't know, because as my you know, as my colleague said, he's unbiographical. I still don't know the guy, right? I might be in the top one percent of people in the world who know Philip Roth. I, mean, I don't know him. I don't know how he really felt about. It. I don't know what the unguarded. Philip Roth is. I'm trying to know him in the text, and I hope the next generation can figure it out. Um, I wonder, I really do wonder what he would make of, of this book, right? Um, I wasn't I'm, guessing he, I'm guessing he wouldn't like it because he just seemed to not like you know, his critics to begin with. Exactly. But, um, um, but I kind of think, I'd like to think there's a part of him that would be, ah, that Berliner Blau, right? <laughs> ah. Thumbs up, kid, and a little pat on the back. boy, you know, um, <laughs> because I'm doing the raw thing, right? And the raw thing is like this relentless criticism, a dislike of pastorals, right? A hatred of hypocrisy. That's what I'm trying to do, right? Am I hypocritical? Absolutely. Do I have my own pastorals? Yes. And that's where my wife and my mom and my friends come in to call me on it, right? But Roth taught us that, and he probably taught you that, right? And I guess we have to live by this Rothian ethos right of keeping it real and really telling the truth and being damned right just tell the truth and be damned and i feel roth if we can say a really great thing about him i do believe he believed that right and he wanted the world to know the importance of independent right uh non-compromised voices telling us what the world is like and that's his greatness and let's try to preserve that at least yeah that that's, sounds a good place to end it I, but of course i'm thinking you know the classic Roth thing is you have like the thesis and antithesis or antithesis coming together. And, you know, uh, the guy who wanted to tell the truth, of course, he meticulously stage managed his public presence and handpicked his own biographer and the documents are going to be destroyed. So, you know, I, it's, they're both, both impulses 
are there of telling the told truth and then like only presenting the exact thing that he, you know, meticulously arranged uh, to be to be his legacy. So uh, yeah, compl- a complicated man, <laughs> we could say. Uh, anything else? Do you want to hit before we uh, before we wrap up? No, um, I, I'm really interested. Uh, I mean, the the folks that are interested are people who love books and love culture, such as yourself, right? Uh, one thing that interests me is is the literary world going to read this book and understand the indictment that is leveled and deal with it? My surmise is no, right? <laughs> They're not going to deal with what the accusations are, right? But I'm really grateful uh, for shows like this. I know this is a small show with a growing audience and there are a few shows like this. These are people that really care about culture and you guys care about books and you want to talk about ideas. So thank you. That's really what I want to say. Thank you for taking it seriously. And uh, I hope you'll have me again when I get into more trouble about something else well yeah thank you for coming on uh thank you for the book if you are a philip roth fan um you know this is this is one you you want to check out and I, if you're still somehow listening or watching this and you're not interested in philip roth i'm you know i'm not quite sure what you're doing with your day but um so the philip roth we don't know um sex race and autobiography is the title um and yeah i think i think that's a, a good place to wrap up uh, so do you want anything else, a uh, website or a Twitter feed or anything else you want to mention? Oh, sure. People want to follow you? Uh, you can, I write about a lot of things. Um, I write about secularism in particular. So jberlinerblau.com, if you want to see all of my, um, uh, all of my meshugas, if you will, is there. And on Twitter, it's just at berlinerblau. And once again, Arya, thank you so much uh, for having me today. Well, thank you so much for the conversation and thanks to our viewers and listeners who can, you know, rate, review, do whatever they want. It's, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, up to, it's up to them. Come at me. Come at me. Yeah. And tell us and if you think we're wrong, um, you know, sound off in the comments. Uh, okay. So <laughs> thank you once again, Jack. And, and uh, thanks to everyone else. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.